and welcome back to HIV, You and Me, Public Health and Biology. This is episode number two, which I promised would be about healthcare. And just a little bit of a note, at this point I've explained about all of the biology that I know, and I honestly felt that that was, that was pretty in-depth. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna go a lot more into the public health side of it from here on out, because that's more of what I'm doing now. Um, so if you want to learn more about the biology of HIV, I'm sure there's other, other platforms. Khan Academy, great resource. NCBI, studies. Just, just look up some studies, you'll find a bunch of information. Okay, so let's talk about healthcare and HIV. specifically the medical community. Now, let's go back to the 1980s and the AIDS epidemic. The specific type of person who was thought to have HIV, to have AIDS, a, a gay white man, um, was ostracized and he was not touched or even looked at. He just people were not sure of how to respond and how to react to the situation, which is totally understandable because I'm sure they were scared. But these men were scared as well. It was it was basically like, I mean, a lot of people who were anti-LGBTQ took it as a sign from God or something like that where, oh, God's punishing you for homosexuality by giving you this disease. So obviously there was very little information about HIV and about AIDS, and that's why so many people died, because there weren't any treatment sources and people were scared to come out and say that they may have the virus or, or even get somewhat tested for it because they didn't want to be ostracized or publicly shamed or feel guilty about like their family members and friends being associated with someone who has this disease. And at that point, there were also a lot of very, I would say much more obvious external side effects, such as weight loss and a gallow, kind of shallow face and skin, skin marks, essentially. Um, But at this point, of course, there aren't. And so it's a lot more of an internal and mental game and also a social one, especially within different communities. I'll get more into that later, but I just want to say before I start this that I think that the community, basically the environment and culture that you grow up in is very, very important, especially when it comes to if you if you have not even HIV, but if you have an autoimmune disorder, or if you have if you have something that makes you feel like you're not normal, quote unquote, within the community, how your community responds to that is so crucial. And especially in terms of race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation and concerns to HIV, 
there's a lot of disparity between how the communities respond to HIV and the testing and the kind of adverse mental side effects, um, which I'll go into more when I get to the mental health podcast, which will be in a couple of episodes. All right, on to healthcare. Now, I'm going to start off with um, a study that I think is does a very good job of kind of doing an overall explanation of the healthcare community and HIV. And then I'll go into specific details such as medical mistrust. Okay, so this study that I'm going to be summarizing is called Sexual and Reproductive Health Services and HIV Testing, Perspectives and Experiences of Women and Men Living with HIV and AIDS. Um, and it was published in 2007, a little bit old, but it does a really good job of, of um, stating the overall theme of the healthcare industry. So essentially, the study says that the stigma and discrimination that HIV positive patients feel in these healthcare settings create a negative perception of medicine and primary care providers for HIV positive people. And it also decreases the chance of these HIV positive people getting HIV testing due to feelings of non-confidentiality or non-anonymity. So overall, HIV positive people, especially LGBTQ people, just don't trust people that are working in these medical fields, especially because of the tumultuous relationship and record of mistreatment and cruelty. I'll get into that a little bit more with some of the other studies I have, especially within the black community. They were really, really treated horribly um, in past history, and I think it's important to know. Anyway, quality of treatment is another concern, of course, as well as continued access to antiretrovirals. This paper essentially concludes by suggesting that positive self-esteem should be encouraged through support groups, counseling, and overarching support of the HIV-positive person through their treatment, which includes their communities, their family members, and healthcare providers, especially in concerns to confidentiality. And that will increase the quality of life for HIV-positive people. So I think one thing that the study does really well is it talks about um, this confidentiality and the issue I think that a lot of people with HIV experience is because of the stigma around it, they they feel scared that if they tell anyone that they think they may be HIV positive or even if they get a test, that even the notion of getting a test could suggest performing or being active in behaviors that are illicit or wrong, quote unquote because of this kind of stigmatized discrimination that occurs when you hear the words HIV. You know, you'll a lot of times people will think of uh, escorts or they'll think of gay clubs, things like that, that like dirty needles, drugs, and that's not what people want to be associated with them. And I completely understand that. And they're scared of their confidentiality because a lot of times in so many states there are basically no real policies or very limited policies on confidentiality and concerns to HIV testing and in general I think it's hard to trust a doctor when they themselves may not have your views or express your views on 
the LGBTQ community, if you are a part of that community, or even in within your own community. So I think it's really important to look at that perspective when you wonder why people don't want to get HIV testing or they're afraid of a result or, or having HIV, even though you can honestly live a basically a normal life normal quotes of course on antiretrovirals it's not just the physical aspects of hiv that take such a toll it's the mental it's the social it's the emotional it's it's all the surrounding factors and barriers it's just another wall and a lot of times it's another wall for people who already have so many walls for especially within minority communities and people who are not straight all right so now i'm going to go into um essentially explaining a little bit more of that with a study that is called why some msm msm stands for minority sexual males uh present late for hiv testing a qualitative analysis and this was published in 2011 and so They took 17 newly diagnosed MSM with a CD4 cell count of less than 200. And if you remember from the last episode, that is very bad. Um, If you have less than 200 CD4 cells per microliter, you are in serious, serious damage, serious damage of the immune system and serious danger, getting AIDS of even dying. And they were interviewed in order to see if there were any patterns associated with getting late HIV testing. And so the study found that HIV stigma and that these MSM believed that they were at low risk of HIV positive status were the reasons that the MSM did not test earlier for HIV. So they found four themes. Psychological barriers, so like the negative perception of HIV due to fear, again, as I, I just talked about. HIV stigma, so yeah, anxiety from telling others and actually taking the test, perceived low risk because these men, interestingly, believed that they were safe and had only taken part in low risk sexual acts and barriers in healthcare. So the primary care providers didn't explain the importance of taking these tests. Uh, just to say, primary care providers are like your, your family doctor, for example. The study concluded that promotion of health should be widespread in communities, not just for high-risk groups. HIV testing needs to be easier to access, possibly through self-testing or routine testing by primary care providers. So yeah, this touches on the fact that I think that there needs to be more education uh, about HIV and AIDS, not even just for for you know citizens, but for, for doctors, for nurses, for people within the medical and public health community itself. Um, and that there are so many experiences that people have where, for example, in one study, there was a black gay woman and she was essentially harassed by her gynecologist because they immediately presumed that she was straight and they were like, why are you, you know, you must be engaged in illicit activities if you're asking me about HIV because that's what she was asking about and you must like you know it's HIV occurs more with your kind so kind of boxing her off not only as a black woman but as as a gay black woman um so there are situations like that where 
the doctor may not even be aware of what they're doing, but it's seriously detrimental and honestly very, very offensive and abusive to the patient. So I think doctors need to put themselves in their patient's shoes in that position and just understand where their patient's coming from where their community's from, how they're feeling mentally as well as physically. I think that's really important as well. And I'll touch more on that in the mental health uh, episode. Yeah. So great, great study. All right. So this one is specifically touching on black MSM. As I said before, minority sexual males. So black men who have sex with men. And it is called Understanding Structural Barriers to Accessing HIV Testing and Prevention Services Among Black Men Who Have Sex with Men in the United States. And it was published in 2014. So essentially, what the researchers did was they searched PubMed and Scopus, which are like these uh, big research databases, for studies on BMSM structural barriers to HIV prevention and testing. And they ended up accumulating 98 articles compiled under a bunch of different... um, subtitles and so they basically found that specifically within healthcare um i'll use this study in other episodes too because it also touches on um stigma and incarceration and poverty but specifically with healthcare barriers um there are lack of awareness and or negative attitudes towards minority sexual males and sexual health as a whole so you're less likely as an MSM than any other race or ethnicity to have health insurance and especially black MSM are less likely to have health insurance as well as black MSM sexual networks that pass along drug resistance mutations they pose significant barriers so the study indicates overall that there needs to be more studies done on PrEP as well in order to understand barriers to access among all minority sexual men, not spe- not just black, specifically black men, um, which I think is also important. I'll touch on that a little bit. PrEP is essentially a drug that was created for an HIV negative partner of someone who has HIV to take essentially to decrease their risk significantly of getting HIV even when they're practicing safe sex and having low-risk sexual activities with their partner. Um, It's a really important drug and essentially they want it to be taken almost like birth control where it's it's pretty simple um, and they're getting towards that point and it's it's pretty effective so um, getting PrEP is really important and if there are barriers to that they need to be understood so I completely agree with the article. In terms of stigma and discrimination, being black and not straight creates social influences and experiences with medical professionals that decrease likelihood of HIV testing and prevention, as well as stigma associated with HIV positive status. And these factors overall created an environment in which a BMSM does not want to know their HIV status and does not want to interact with the medical community at all. The study emphasized more studies to develop prevention strategies and educational tools to provide BMSMs with the knowledge and skills to seek out services in their community. So this goes into it a little bit, but essentially um, the next article I'm going to talk about because that kind of goes into this article is about the medical mistrust um, within the black community based on 
the horrific past and history um, of Black Americans and their experience with um, the medical community in America. So, if you don't know, um, I think there are two pretty big um, historical events that I should talk about. The first is of Henrietta Lacks, who a lot of people know, um, which is good. She essentially, um, her cells, unbeknownst to her or her family, were used to create the HeLa cell line, which was basically um, cells that could be um, frozen and immortalized, essentially, to develop the polio vaccine and cloning, gene mapping, in vitro fertilization, stuff like that. So it was very important, but she did not give consent. Her family did not give consent. And in fact, 25 years after Henrietta died, they finally found out, her family found out that those cells were Henrietta's. Essentially, Lax's story is one of non-consensual scientific, I don't know. I mean, honestly, it, it severely crosses a line. And so many African-American people were taking advantage of that back then, especially in the scientific community. But her achievements, not hers, I guess her, her HeLa cell line, it achieves so much. And I wonder what some people who, let's call them racist, to be nice, would think if they knew that the vaccine that they were getting was based off of cells from a black woman. So at least there's that. But still really horrible. And then the Tuskegee syphilis study, um, I think a lot more people know it, really, really bad. Basically, they took hundreds of African-American men, told them that they were getting um, essentially free medical treatment and and meals um, if they took part in the study of syphilis. and trying to like create an antibiotic for it, penicillin, but essentially instead of giving the men penicillin, they just let them have syphilis and let them go untreated so that the scientists could study the effects of the disease, um, which was super, 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 super unethical because the researchers did not even offer the penicillin once it became um, the recommended drug for syphilis to the subjects. They just continued to see the effects of syphilis on them. Um, It's just horrible. And I think when a lot of people in the African American communities of America think about the medical fields and, and doctors, they think about this history. And they think about 
government covering up things and and because you know it was only found out years and years later that this was you know this happened and that the government essentially covered it up So that leads me to um, this study uh, from 2010, which is conspiracy beliefs about HIV are related to antiretroviral treatment, not adherence among African-American men with HIV. So essentially, the study found a significant association between antiretroviral therapy adherence, which is um, continuing to use the drugs that would delay the um, viral load increasing of HIV um, and the association to the belief in conspiracy theories. So essentially, if participants demonstrated beliefs in these HIV conspiracy theories that are not believed by a large percentage of the general population, they um, were much more likely to have a lower level of adherence. So essentially, they wouldn't take as much of the recommended drugs because of mistrust. Um, They only took an average of 68% of the prescribed doses. So as a result, only 22% of those participants had an optimal, aka more than 95% level of adherence to antiretroviral therapy, which is the only way that it can work most effectively. And this 22% of the population of these participants were significantly more likely to have an undetectable viral load than the rest of the population, suggesting that when proof, quote-unquote, is shown that antiretroviral therapy works, patients are much more likely to adhere to the antiretroviral therapy in order to remain with an undetectable status slash decrease their viral load. So, because these men believe in conspiracy theories such as um, HIV was man-made, 44% thought that, um, AIDS was produced in a government lab, 35% thought that, um, 33% believe that there's a cure for AIDS, but it's being withheld from the poor, 31% believe that AIDS is a form of genocide or planned discretion against black people, 31% believe that AIDS was created by the government to control the black population. So, essentially, they are wary, and for good reason, of drugs that are coming from the government if they believe that the government started all this. Um, due to their past history, due to the past history of the black community and the medical community. But when those men started to show signs of success that adhered, those 22% of men, they were essentially shown proof that that it works and it's not, you know, a trick by the government and they adhered to it. So... Basically, the most important finding of the study was that stronger genocidal and treatment-related conspiracy beliefs, um, like the ones that are specifically against black people and that it's a form of genocide, um, were associated with a lower percentage of doses taken over the past month that they studied them. So less healthcare and a younger age was also associated with less adherence. Therefore, the study recommended intervention programs to openly address these beliefs and target adherence promotion. Now, conspiracy theories and um, antiretroviral therapy is kind of a disputed topic within the HIV community because there are several studies that show that having these um, beliefs 
lead to lower adherence and lead to worse outcomes on antiretroviral therapy, but other studies show that it doesn't really make a difference, so I think it all just depends on the community. Um, I believe certainly in this community of black men, regardless of sexual orientation, that it's, it's a big portion of their mental state of how well they can do on this therapy and how well they can do in beating this disease or at least fighting it off all right and then this one is interesting because it is comparing jackson mississippi and boston massachusetts so they're both cities but they're in vastly different areas um and it is from 2017 it's called stigma medical mistrust and perceived racism may affect prep awareness and uptake in black compared to white gay and bisexual men in jackson mississippi and boston massachusetts so essentially the study took four focus groups in boston and jackson with black minority sexual men bmsm again that had high risk of hiv acquisition and they asked these men questions in order to establish themes and compare the city's results and so all these men had to be born male, um, be MSM, and have at least one experience of unprotected anal sex with a non-primary partner in the past three months. So four themes emerged that were found to be common between both the Boston and the Jackson focus groups. Inadequate knowledge of PrEP, um, concerns of side effects, disclosure of sexual orientation to the primary care provider, and provider care insensitivity. Now, the differences is that Boston participants were significantly more educated on PrEP, and they also had more disclosure, positive experiences, and better relationships with primary care providers in Boston. Um, however, both groups spoke of concerns over safety of taking PrEP and using PrEP with other medications and drug use, so that suggests um, less education on PrEP, and both groups spoke of negative experiences with primary care providers and medical mistrust. So Jackson specifically also had more medical mistrust within the black community, especially um, HIV and anti-gay stigma. So they had more fear of disclosure of their status. So that meant they had less PrEP use because if they didn't, if they disclosed that um, they either had HIV or had an H a partner who had HIV, it again leads to that fear of stigmatization and ostracization. And they also had in Jackson a need for improved education on PrEP, specifically for black men. Um, and what was interesting was that many of the black minority sexual men identified as straight, not gay or otherwise, even though they had um, sexual experiences with other men. So the education itself of PrEP should not be directed towards gay relationships or experiences because it would increase stigma and decrease effectiveness. So overall, this study found that BMSM in northern states have different experiences and education levels than BMSM in southern states, and that these differences can be targeted through community outreaches and standardization of education on PrEP. That includes preventative care and behavioral interventions. So I think it's just interesting because a lot of times when you hear about, um, especially within the scientific community, not necessarily the public health community, but the scientific community, when you hear about groups, when you talk about sectioning people off into race, 
gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, etc., even age, it's very, not to use it literally, but black and white, it's very, all of these people go in one box, even though they can be separated, not even just by northern and southern location like that, but even different cities that are closer to each other, let's say Newark and New York City, they're very close to each other, but you could have an entirely different experience as a black gay man in Newark than in New York City. So it's important to also look at location and family history. I think it's important to look at the individual as a whole and not just the community in order to effectively treat and understand what the person's going through. Okay. Finally, I'm going to talk about um, a study that I recently looked at, which is called Health and Healthcare Disparities Among U.S. Women and Men at the Intersection of Sexual Orientation and Race Slash Ethnicity, a nationally representative cross-sectional study published in 2017. So it essentially took a huge national health interview survey of 91,913 Americans and compared the health and healthcare outcomes of sexual minorities of color versus heterosexuals of color versus white heterosexuals. And they separated this by gender. I definitely wanted to look at this because this is one of the only studies I looked at that includes women, just because, um, if you didn't know, I am working uh, with Rutgers on a study of black minority sexual men, if you can tell. So we look a lot more at men, um, but I think it's also important to include women to compare to. And it's, of course, as a woman, I want to look at women and the other factor that this article goes into as well of the sexist component of it um, that is instrumental to their health. So the study found that in terms of race and sexual orientation for almost every behavior and outcome, sexual minority men and women exhibit disparities that are not surprising. Um, In terms of health outcomes, white sexual minority men had increased hypertension, cancer, and functional limitations way more than white heterosexual men. Hispanic sexual minority men did not have a significant difference in health outcomes versus white heterosexual men, but they did have increased hypertension and functional limitations versus Hispanic heterosexual men. So this points to a racial divide on a bigger scale. And within those communities, it points to a stigmatized divide um, and concerns to sexual orientation. Now, in terms of access to healthcare, interestingly, sexual minority women were less likely to have a primary care provider compared to their heterosexual counterparts. Um, so heterosexual women, as opposed to sexual minority men, who are more likely to have a primary care provider compared to their heterosexual counterparts, so heterosexual men. This divide points to the HIV epidemic profile that I've talked about before, white sexual minority male, as well as the fact that sexual minority women were not more likely to get HIV tested than heterosexual women. Unsurprisingly, Sexual minority men were more likely to get HIV tested than heterosexual men across all races, and black sexual minority men specifically were more likely to be uninsured versus white and black heterosexual men. Overall, this study took these findings to suggest that being a sexual minority of color increases health disparities due to racism from the white heterosexual and LGBTQ communities, as well as heterosexism from their own racial communities. For women, another burden of sexism is added to the discrimination, and that increases the health and healthcare divide for sexual minority women of color specifically. 
institutional discrimination from hospitals and primary care providers, as well as expectations from racial and sexual communities, can create even more internalized homophobia and possible concealment of sexual identity for these sexual minorities across all genders and races in order to cope, of course, negatively cope. This is not the kind of coping that we would want with these stressors. So honestly, in my opinion, it's imperative that the medical and public health communities understand the critical intersection between racial and sexual identity in terms of outcomes and behaviors of patients as a whole and how it impacts the community. stuff is honestly it's really interesting to look at but it's also sad it's really sad there are essentially a lot of the articles say very similar things and they're all they're all depressing i'm not gonna lie this is just the tip of the iceberg the next episode i'm gonna talk about incarceration which is truly terrible the stuff that goes on and then mental health um and that includes suicide and suicide ideation, which I have a lot on. Um, and then I'll go into education. And that's a whole whirlwind as well. No promo homo, anyone? We'll get there when we get there. But, I mean, I could talk a lot more about healthcare. But again, I'm not an expert. I just want to say that as well. I'm not an expert. I'm not considered an expert. I'm a high school student. I'm just sharing what I know. And I, hopefully I'm sharing it in a way that gets you to change your perspective in some way on HIV and people with HIV. That's the whole goal of this podcast. So uh, thank you for listening and see you next time. This has been HIV and You, Public Health and Biology with your host, <laughs> Ruby Sigmund. <laughs>